Our Father and our God, we submit ourselves to your word. We know you love us, and we love you. We thank you so much for the privilege it is to gather together and lift our praises to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the God of all glory, creator God, who reigns over all his creation. And we are privileged to be your children, Lord. We are privileged to be in God's family and to be placed in this local church, to have brothers and sisters who love us and care for us. And Lord, we thank you for the rich fellowship of being in Christ. And so this morning, Father, we just pray that you would awaken our hearts and our minds to the magnitude of your glory. Our Father, I pray that we might see the glory of Christ fresh in the truth of your word. I pray, Father, that you would demonstrate your power, your great power among us, your power to save, your power to change and sanctify people, your power, Lord, to lift people from their uh, sadness and pain and hurt. Oh, God, you are so wonderful, and we thank you, and we love you, and we ask now that you would incline us to desire the word uh, as a deer pants for the water, oh God. I pray that we would find it to be sweeter to us than honey on the honeycomb because you are so good and your mercy endures forever and we praise you in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Well, I, um, as I mentioned in the first service, I think Pastor Steve and I have been hanging out together way too much. Both of us shared in the malady of laryngitis this week, and neither of us have been able to talk for about three days, which has made the office very quiet, and it's been a blessing to some in the office, I'm sure. <clears throat> so um, I uh, thank you for praying as we work our way through this, and um, that, you know, the great promise of Scripture is that when we are weak, Christ is strong, is demonstrated to be strong. He's strong whether we're strong or weak, but he's, he's demonstrated to be strong in our weakness. So it is to my advantage and your advantage, really, that uh, Christ will be exalted and praised in weakness. Well, my task this morning is a very, very challenging one, theology of hell. <clears throat> we have, we've been working through a series, uh, for those of you who may or not have been with us, uh, a series entitled, What You Think Matters. And um, the question that's put before us this morning is this, is hell real and necessary? And I'm firmly convinced that everyone in here has a very strong opinion about this subject a very emotional opinion, no doubt, about this subject. And so my work that is cut out for me today is to be very careful to share with you from the scripture uh, what the word of God says. It might surprise you. I was thinking about this when I was uh, researching and working on this uh, this week. I was thinking, I wonder 
uh, I would love to poll the congregation and, uh, and find out what you think. And of course, publicly, you wouldn't want to be polled, but privately, it would be fascinating to find out what you think about hell. Uh, because uh, in my research, I discovered in, a jo- in George Barna's uh, survey, and Barna is a, um, a Christian researchist um, who uh, you've heard me mention before and others preach before. In a Barna study in, tw- in 2011, uh, 25% of born-again believers believe that all people will eventually be saved and accepted, 25%. So if that's so, then one out of four of you who claim to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ here uh, are universalists who believe that everyone will be saved and accepted. And that would presuppose that you don't really believe that anybody would be in hell. And uh, um, so uh, I have my work cut out for me. Um, In a 2007 study, it won't surprise you probably to uh, learn that 68% of people do not believe in hell, that hell is a place of torment and suffering after death. That's a high, high percentage of people. That's, that's one or two-thirds, basically, of all of North America uh, do not believe that hell is a place of torment and suffering after death. Well, what do you believe? Um, is hell real? and necessary. More importantly, what do the scriptures teach? And I'm going to take some time with you this morning. Um, A list will be up, uh, giving giving you enough time to write down some scripture texts, which we won't look up all of them, but I do want to take a journey with you. Um, Some suggest that you will never hear a sermon like this, the one that I'm going to preach to you today in most modern churches. And I would say that's probably true. I I can't remember actually devoting a sermon to the theology of hell ever before, although I've covered the subject when it comes up exegetically, but never in the sense of of actually uh, looking carefully at the theology of hell. When questioned about the relative absence of teaching on hell, and, and you'll agree with me that you probably, it's probably been a very long time, if ever, that you've ever heard a sermon on hell. In my prayer group uh, this morning, um, there was uh, someone mentioned it, never heard a sermon on hell. And, uh, and so you may never have yourself. When questioned about the relative absence of teaching on hell in the uh, modern church, Bill Hybels replied this, I don't think fear as a tactic really moves people toward faith these days. And I would agree with him. I absolutely 100% agree that fear does not motivate people to love God. Uh, But I can quickly uh, also say that church leaders cannot, must not, dare not excuse themselves from telling people the truth of God's word, regardless of how uncomfortable it might be to our sensibilities or our sensitivities. Because the question is, is the matter of hell dealt with in the scriptures? And I'm pretty certain that this audience will say, yes, it is. It is dealt with in the scriptures. And I think that the reason that hell is so easily dismissed as sort of politically incorrect preaching in our modern age is because we measure everything, 
against our own standards and sensibilities. And hell has nothing, I want you to hear me now, hell has nothing whatsoever to do with the standards of our sensibilities. Nothing at all. And everything to do with the awesome holiness and majesty and glory of Almighty God. Absolutely, 100%, has nothing to do with how we feel emotionally or what our standards of right and wrong or justice are. It has everything to do, and if, I, if at the end of the sermon I fail to make this point, then this sermon is a complete failure. It has everything to do with the standard and measure of the majesty and awesome glory of Almighty God. And so I want to take you on a journey, and uh, I want to read for you, first of all, Psalm 47 to orientate ourselves to the awesomeness of God. Because unless in our heart of hearts we have settled the magnitude of the glory of God, hell will not make sense to us at all. Now, in Psalm 47, for the director of music, clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. Why? How awesome is the Lord Most High the great king over the earth, all the earth. He subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved, Selah. You see a Selah in a psalm, it is pause. Think about this. Never through the psalms ever. Don't just try and get done the Psalms. The Psalms are to be contemplated. The Psalms are to take great pauses and just think, yes, God is so awesome. And to camp there with your heart before you move on. You're not ready to move on unless you've contemplated it. And then as you contemplate it, God has ascended amid shouts of joy. The Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. What are we supposed to do to our king? You got it. Sing praises. It's so, so important what we do when we gather at the beginning of our service time. We gather together in the morning. Just sing praises to God. It can't be neglected. It must not be neglected. For he is the great king of glory. It, it, um, it is right to sing praises to the king. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the of the God of Abraham, for the kings of the earth belong to God. So don't shake and get unnerved and get all worried about the news and everything that's going on. I know it's wild out there, but you need to know that the kings of the earth belong to our king. All right? And he is greatly exalted. 
Now that establishes for us the awesomeness of God. That rightly establishes his credentials. He is king over all the universe. And if you understand that, and if you have let, if you have allowed that to fully grip your heart and how you view God, then you will be able to position hell appropriately in your life. If you struggle with the concept and the context and the character of God, then you will find yourself among those who struggle deeply with hell. And so I set the table for you from, as psalmist sets the table from God's word, and I want to say to you that the scriptures and Jesus affirm the reality of hell. To deny the reality of hell brings all of scripture into question if you're going to be consistent in your life or anything else that Jesus said for that matter. And uh, in order for us, if, if we are to um, find the concept of hell uh, to be one that we disagree with, we are, going to have to be, we are going to have to hope that the scriptures don't mean what they seem to mean. Simple as that. Because in the straightforward reading of the scriptures, it's impossible to justify not believing in its reality. It's impossible. You would have to hope that what the scriptures seem to say, they don't really mean. And if you start on that journey, then the word of God becomes meaningless to you. If you start to look at texts and because you're uncomfortable with them, you decide that they don't really mean what they seem to mean. And the Bible has no meaning in your life anymore as a standard or guide for life. So I submit to you that as we look at a few texts, we're not gonna look at them all, but, but I wanna carefully look at a couple of things because there's a few descriptions we must know about hell. I want you to take uh, your Bibles and I want you to turn to the very back of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. I want you to... Uh, look at Revelation chapter 14 as an example. I want you also to have your finger in the book of Jude, which is the book right before Revelation. I want to look at a couple of things there. I want to look at the fact that hell, first of all, is eternal. Now, there are many who uh, disagree with that. There are many who try to explain that away. There, and particularly in our region, in our city, in the particular denomination that resides here with great numbers, do not believe in the eternality of hell, but believe rather in annihilation of those who don't love God, uh, I would submit to you that you can't find that concept in the scriptures. It just doesn't exist. In our heart of hearts, I know we want to go there, but the Bible's not going to allow us to go there unless what the Bible seems to say, it doesn't really mean. Now, in Revelation 14, 9, talking about final judgment. Verse 9 of Revelation 14, a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he's talking about the Antichrist at the end, the, the, the works of Satan, 
he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises, what does it say? Forever and ever. Now you have to lop that right out of the scriptures if you don't want hell to be a place of eternal torment. It just, I'm afraid, uh, beloved, that's what the word of God says. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast or his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Back in the book of Jude, again, talking about uh, judgment on godless people. In the book of Jude, also with respect to fallen angels, uh, verse 6, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these are what we call demons, these he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Now theologically we discover that some of those who rebelled against God, some of the angels that fell and rebelled against God, some of the demonic horde God has, has bound up since their fall not to allow them to, to have any uh, work in the, in the earth. But then it goes on to say, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah, in other words, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of, what's the word? Eternal fire. In verse 12 and 13, these men are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. I want to pause there for a second. This is very unnerving. This is talking about people who assemble with God's people. These are, this is talking about those who have been with you, those who have been with us, those who have apparently worshipped with us as a descriptor here. Shepherds who feed only themselves possibly pastors. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved. I'm listening. Forever. And you can search beyond that. I haven't been exhaustive in any way, shape, or form on these uh, uh, texts that I've given to you this morning. Uh, Hell is uh, forever, forever, and ever, ever place, forever eternal. It is also punitive. I want to quickly say that no one will ever be there who doesn't deserve to be in hell. In in, uh, Matthew chapter 13... And verse 40 and 42, um, here uh, Jesus is talking and, uh, uh, in the parable, and in, by, the, by the time we get to verse 40, he's talking about the, the weeds, the parable of the weeds and the wheat, and he says, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, verse 40, so it will be at the end of the age, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And on and on in scripture texts, I've given you a list of them. Hell is a place of punishment. 
We noticed that in in the book of Jude, while we were there, that it's also a place of fire. And the imagery of fire, of course, fire is something that's insatiable. Fire is never satisfied. Uh, Fire always, always keeps consuming and consuming, and it never stops. It's always consuming. And so the idea that is is cast here of hell is this place of fire that's always consuming. We also learned in the book of Jude that it's a place of darkness. It's a place of the absence of light because it's a place of the absence of God. God is light. You realize, I hope we understand that we don't, God it doesn't, it doesn't, isn't required that there would be the sun or the moon or, or the stars or, or these lights to give us light. God is light. And where God is, there is light. And where God is not, is darkness. And uh, in Matthew chapter 25, uh, where um, uh, Jesus is talking about the, um, the uh, separation of the... Uh, Sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. He also mentions a very important reality about hell. And uh, in uh, verse 41, first of all, in verse 40, the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And then he says this, then he, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you, are, you are, who are cursed, into the eternal fire. But notice prepared for the devil and his angels. Really important for you to understand that hell was made for Satan and his demonic followers. God did not make hell for people. He made it for Satan and a demonic horde that rebelled against God. That's very, very critical. Because the Bible teaches us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to him. And so we learn in the scriptures that this is, it's a very important reality to understand that it was made to incarcerate the leaders, original leaders of a rebellion against God. Now you'll find that hell is mentioned in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's regularly called Sheol. I've given you a few examples in the text, but by the way, it can just mean sometimes the grave. It's all about the context that you read in the Old Testament. In the book of Numbers 16.33, for instance, it's where Korah and his uh, other men uh, rebelled against Moses' leadership, and uh, in that context, they were uh, the eternal destiny of the wicked, and they were cast into hell. In, uh, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 23, uh, it talks there about Hades, or, or, and uh, again, the, it's talking there about eternal punishment, but sometimes in the New Testament, Hades can simply mean the grave, as it does in Acts 2, verse 27. So there you have a quick survey of the scripture, uh, not exhaustive at all, but it gives you a, a, a scriptural foundation. Is hell real? And I'm saying to you, I, I'm suggesting to you, or I'm not suggesting to you, I'm telling you that the Bible says that it is. And Jesus affirms that it is. Now, here's an important question, though. Is, is hell necessary? And, and this is, this is a, a critical uh, part for us because, uh, as I said from the very get-go, uh, what makes it so challenging and hard for us to discuss or to preach or talk about hell or even to contemplate it or, or consider it is with our hearts. It's an incredibly heavy burden. It's a heavy, heavy burden. 
The, the reality of hell is, in other words, if it isn't a burden on your heart, don't even talk about it to somebody. You're not qualified to talk about it to somebody if it's not. If, it's, if you're just clinical about this, then, then you're not qualified to talk to anybody about this. But this is a great burden on our hearts. How are we to understand the nature of something that's eternal punishment, eternal suffering, eternal torment? Particularly because for us, because we are made in the image of God, we have a, an eternal sense of justice about us. And so when we're thinking about the whole concept of hell and eternal punishment and uh, eternal, eternal punishment for those who reject God, we think in our hearts, wait a second, a lifetime, maybe 70 or 80 or 90 years of rejecting God over against eternal punishment in hell, it doesn't seem to balance. Because for us, the, the, uh, the punishment must fit the crime, right? We've learned that. And so um, in understanding the nature of the justice of hell, for most of us, it causes great consternation. It doesn't seem to balance. And that's because we measure the crime of treason against God too lightly. What we don't seem to understand is that hell actually teaches us about the justice of God. You see, the justice of God demands that the punishment does fit the crime. And hell is the measurement of the crime of treason against the king of glory. That's what this is all about. We, we need to come to terms and understand how great is the glory of God and how Pathetic is our concept of the glory of God. Uh, the writer um, in your uh, workbook was correct, J.D. Greer, when he writes this. We think hell is severe because we don't think trampling on the glory of God is that big of a deal. Because we think the big deal in the universe is us. You see, the value of something is always measured... Uh, against the severity of the punishment if that thing is violated. That's how this works. For instance, if you steal a pencil versus you murder someone, all of us in here would recognize that the punishment for stealing a pencil is quite different than the punishment for murdering a person. That's justice. We recognize that. So we come to terms with the value of the pencil isn't all that great because the punishment for stealing a pencil isn't all that great. On the other hand, the punishment for murdering a person is significantly great and so we recognize the value of human life is so great that the punishment must be great. Well, I need you to understand as you get a concept of the horror and horribleness of hell, of how great the value of the glory of God must be if the punishment for its violation is so horrible. You see, the, the act of treason against the king of glory is the greatest crime that a human being can commit. It is the creation snubbing the creator 
and his righteousness and his right to be worshipped and magnified and glorified and honored. And so this high act of treason requires in terms of justice the punishment in order to validate the value of the glory of God. The magnitude of the offense of rejecting and rebelling against the majestic, righteous, almighty, glorious God renders the sentence of hell barely enough. God takes arrogant rejection by the creature very personally. Now, I want to quickly say to you that um, many of you say, I don't, I don't know if I like that side of God. Um, the judgment side of God, the wrath side of God. I, I want you to know something, that God is not embarrassed about his wrath. In fact, his wrath is part of his glory. And, and God's people, you, 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 we all need to realize that God is not embarrassed by anything about his character. Because his character is totally, completely holy and awesome and perfect and wonderful and good. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Romans, uh, must have uh, sensed from the Holy Spirit this very concept because as humans, we, we're really quick and we love the love of God and the grace of God and the kindness of God and the patience of God and, and the gooeyness of God's love and all of that. We want to go there all the time. And we hear people say, a God of love. How many times have you heard this? Would you like a dollar for every time you've heard this? I'd be a rich man for every time someone has said to me, the God of love would never do that. He's also a God of wrath towards sin, toward rebellion, toward rejection. God hates what hurts you. He wouldn't be a loving God if he was in heaven saying, you know what, I'm just going to wink at the stuff that ruins people's lives. I don't mind the stuff that hurts them. It's, I'm fine with it. It's their life. So, so what if they have to suffer? That's not who our God is, and that's what a, what a loving God is like. A loving God hates the things that hurt. Listen, if you're a parent in here, you know that you hate anything that hurts your children. You would never allow, and no love allows their children to be hurt. God hates the sin that harms us and hurts us. And so the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, and in Romans chapter 11, verse 22, maybe an obscure verse that you've never really noticed before, uh, gives us license to talk about these kinds of things when it says this, Consider, therefore, the kindness, we love that, of God. We'll stop there. But it says, and, in the NIVs, where it kind of watered down the word, the word means severity of God. Uh, we are commanded, this is a command of God's people. Uh, God is saying, I want you to consider both my kindness and my severity. I want you to, I want, God wants us to know everything about him. God, the word of God is the revelation, it's the disclosure of who God is. God is not embarrassed about anything about himself. He fully discloses his wrath to us. 
His wrath is righteous. It's moral. It's just. He's not embarrassed by it. And, and we are told, we are commanded, in fact, to consider, therefore, the kindness and severity of God, severity to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Uh, God is not ashamed of his wrath against rebellion and rejection. He's not embarrassed about anything of his character. That willful rejection of the free moral creature is a crime he uses, by the way, to display his wrath. I need to show you something. There's a very difficult, you need to keep your, your finger in the book of Romans, Romans 9, because we're coming back here. But I want you to go all the way back to Exodus because the Apostle Paul uses an incident in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 9, uh, to um, illustrate the absolute nature and reality of who God is and why God is the way he is, although he doesn't seek our counsel and he doesn't invite us to question who he is. Listen, beloved, God is God. Can we finally get that settled in our lives? Can that please settle that in our lives, that God is God? And, and that means something very significant. And so here is this uh, moment in time in the book of Exodus where, where God is going to liberate his people and free them from Egypt. And you've got Pharaoh, who's this uh, puny, nothing leader of Egypt, who decides that he's going to take God on. And it's going to be a test of who is the greatest king in the universe. Imagine. And so... Um, God says, that, because God has already told him to release his people, told, told Pharaoh, I want you to release my people. And Pharaoh's, no, I'm not releasing your people, because I'm more powerful. I can choose to keep them. I'm more powerful than the God of Israel. And so God says this in Exodus chapter 9, verse 15, for by now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And then over in um, chapter 14 of this same book, Exodus, it says there in verse 4, uh, God says, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Uh, we need to understand something about God. So zealous is he for his glory, and so merciful is he on the other hand, and we'll get to that. So zealous is he for his glory, that although he could turn us into vapor the first time we ever sass him, he chooses at times to be patient with his judgment to give enough time for that person who sasses him to recognize that in a showdown between them and God, God is God and will always win. And so he says in the text, that I have raised you up, Pharaoh. Do you not realize, Pharaoh, little puny human being who in a moment can be snuffed out, that I could have snuffed you at the first act of rebellion, but I chose to allow you to live, 
and I chose, you, I chose to allow you to rebel against me, that the people who I love and who love me might witness your destruction and recognize how awesome I am. Not only that, but I, if I snuffed you out immediately, you wouldn't recognize how great I am, and I'm going to show you how great I am. I'm going to show you that you can't stand up to anything against me, that you might recognize that I truly am the king over all the universe. And that's why we read in the New Testament that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. And by the way, that's not a salvation moment. That's a recognition of the glory of God by all of those all of their lives who had rebelled and rejected against the greatness of God. They will all, everyone, will have to admit, including Pharaoh, who already has admitted that God truly is the glorious king of the universe. Now, this Paul, the Apostle Paul, used back in the book of Romans in a very difficult text for most of us in the book of Romans chapter 9, verse 22 to 23, in this section that talks about the ultimate sovereignty of God and his right to choose and right to, to, uh, uh, to operate uh, the way he will the way he wills. And it says in this text, in verse 22, what if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? Uh, God... Uh, uses the entrenched rebellion of the rebel heart to put the severity of his perfect holiness on display for all eternity. Do we understand that God does this for us? Uh, God demonstrates to us the severity of his judgment in the concept of hell that we might recognize the incredible, magnanimous, graciousness of a God who would rescue sinful people like us, objects of his mercy. If we learn that if God despises sin and rebellion and rejection so dramatically, how great must the mercy of God be that he would save me, that he would rescue me, that he would release me from that judgment. That's the demonstration of his awesomeness. That's the point of this, that God demonstrates his greatness to the objects of his mercy. Um, and he demonstrates the value of his glory and the extent to which he will go to vindicate his glory at Calvary. It's at Calvary that the Lord of glory demonstrates his hatred towards sin to the ultimate degree, yet his great mercy and grace to people who he calls to love him. And it's at Calvary that, that the God the Father poured out all of the wrath that was directed at us 
and placed it on his son that we may be allowed to go free. That's why Jesus Christ fell down in the garden of Gethsemane and called out to his father, oh, father, if this cup could be passed from me, but not my will, rather thine be done. What cup do you think he was talking about? Jesus wasn't talking about simply having his hands nailed to a cross and his feet nailed to a cross and a spear thrown into his side and a crown of thorns put on his head. He was talking about the horror and the incredible awesomeness of the wrath of God, the full cup of God's wrath being poured out on Jesus on our behalf that we might go free. And it is, to, it is for us to see how holy and awesome and, and, uh, and, and glorious God is and perfect in his holiness that we see how merciful he has been to us to let us go free from the things that should have put us in hell. Do you realize it's because of God's patience and mercy that he didn't vaporize us the first time in our life that we ever sassed him or rejected him or disobeyed him? There isn't a person in here this morning that hasn't sassed God, that hasn't rejected God, that hasn't turned their back on God, that hasn't disobeyed God, and in his patience and long-suffering, although he could have killed you on the spot and sent you to hell, he rescued you because of his great mercy and for his great glory. And so we are not to question the wisdom of hell, but rather fall down on our knees and call out, oh God, you are so glorious. Be merciful to me, a sinner, undeserving of the least of your favor. And so hell, I believe, is not only a permanent monument, to the absolute greatness and glory of God, but an eternal deterrent toward a rebellion ever occurring again in eternity. That's why I believe the scriptures teach that hell won't end. Think about this. Uh, when uh, Lucifer was created and all of those angels that rebelled, what was the description of them when they were created? Are you here? Come on, class. They were good. Everything that God created was good. There was no reason for them to rebel against the king of glory. Not one, one tiny reason. There was nothing to tempt them to do that. There was nothing. Sin, would not, had, not been crea- sin had not happened. But they rebelled. And I believe that it's possible Because if it was possible to rebel from the perfect state in heaven, God's glorious creation, then it would be possible, perhaps, to rebel again. I believe that hell will be an eternal deterrent reminder to everyone who's in heaven of what God thinks about rebelling against his awesome glory, that none of us might rise up in all eternity with pride puffing up in our hearts as it did in Lucifer's case, in the demon's case that followed him. 
Now, a cross is God's radical, by the way, cross is God's radical extreme act to keep humanity out of hell. I believe uh, we need to understand that the Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to know him. Dear brothers and sisters, we, we know this to be true. God is a God who delights in people coming to him. Now, I want to conclude this in the, in the next few minutes that we have. I'm not going to be able to complete the sermon for those of you who have study notes with you and picked up the long notes. Uh, type A, you'll, you'll be frustrated by this, but we just need to, we need to hone in on what we're really talking about here in these last couple of minutes. Our eternal choice is not about heaven and hell. When we come to terms with all of this, our eternal choice is not about heaven and hell, it's about God. This is all about God. This is all about whether you love God or whether you don't want to love God. It's not about whether you go to a place called heaven or whether you go to a place called hell. It's whether or not you love God. This issue of treason, the high treason, it's all about loving God or not loving God, choosing not to love God. Is it not true that that we believe that our God uh, is merciful and just and, and longs for people to come know him? Brothers and sisters, is it not true that if we went out in the street today and we called out to people and said, come because everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, is that not a true thing? Is that not true about God? Does he not long for people to come to him? Come to him and love him. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Isn't that what God is, is longing for, is, is looking for? Those who treasure God get his forever presence and eternal joys that God reserves for his loyal and loving subjects. That's the truth. And those who wish to be independent of God experience the full measure of that for eternity. That's called hell. That's the distinction. It's all about whether or not you want to be with God, whether or not you love God and you follow God. If you love God, you'll follow him to heaven. If you don't want anything to do with God now, then that's fine. He'll withdraw. He'll leave you in a place where he won't be. That's the definition of hell. It's the total absence of God. And here's the problem with our, our, the people that we, uh, we cry over, we pray over, we urge, we beg, we ask, we call on them. Please call on the Lord. Turn your heart over to the Lord. This, this is the, the, the reality of, of this situation is that, is that God is willing to receive them to follow him. But, but here's the problem with people is they've, they've misjudged what it is to live in this world and, and, and the blessings that they enjoy. You see, what, what people don't realize is the reason that they have light and the reason that they have joy and the reason that they experience kindness and the reason that they experience friendship and the reason that they experience some sort of satisfaction in life is because they live in my father's world and your father's world. That's why. They get to benefit from the the residual grace of God, the common grace of God. He puts the sunshine on the righteous and the sunshine on the wicked and rains on the fields of the wicked and rains on the fields of the righteous. And they misjudge the goodness of God in my Father's world as uh, God's okay with me. 
And, and so they live their lives thinking that, that uh, uh, I'm, I'm fine and I'm enjoying all of this. And they have no idea. I, you know, I don't, I don't want anything to do with God, but I enjoy all of this. And they fail to realize that if God is really totally out of their lives, if he really absents himself from their lives, it will be entirely different than they ever imagined. Because when God leaves, everything good leaves with him. Everything. Light, kindness, patience, satisfaction, joy, friendships, anything that is good, anything that makes life worth living, anything that we enjoy goes with God. And where God is, that's where that is. And so when God leaves, and none of us have ever experienced what that is, when God totally leaves, then everything goes with him. And sadly, the people who don't love God and want to live independent from him are making the mistake of thinking that the common blessings that come from God are not really from God and that it'll be fine and it won't be. In a parable in Luke chapter 16, we don't have time to look there this morning, but you know this parable, and I'll just conclude with this. It's the parable of a rich man and Lazarus. They both die. Jesus tells this parable. They both die. Lazarus, it says, goes into the, bo- the bosom of Abraham or goes into, the, into the, uh, the, the presence of God. And it says that the, the rich man goes into the place of torment. And uh, the rich man, of course, had interaction with Lazarus, who was a very, very poor man. In fact, Lazarus, it says, lived outside of the door of the rich man's property, wishing that he could just eat some of the crumbs that fell from the table of the rich man. And, um, you know, some of us um, who uh, recognize the nature of what the scriptures teach about hell... Uh, look at it and we realize, well, why wouldn't hell just be sort of temporary? Or, or, or maybe people would repent. If they got to hell, they'd repent and they'd want God. And, and then God could rescue them out of hell and bring them to heaven. And, and this parable kind of, conclu- kind of teaches us forever that that's not so. You see, this rich man who, by the way, is nameless because God doesn't know him. You know, it says in the Bible, some people say, didn't I do this in your name? Didn't I do that in your name? And God will say, what? Depart from me because what? I never knew you. But God knows Lazarus' name because Lazarus loved God. And the rich man, uh, instead of calling out to God from hell, oh God, be merciful to me. I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize that I did it. I, I turned my back on you. Would you please, please, reconsider and let me out of this place. He doesn't do that. He goes to Abraham. He doesn't even go to God. And not once does he ever ask or say that he was sorry for how he lived or that, that he wishes that he had another chance or that he wishes that, he could, could, that God could forgive him and, and be merciful to him again. No, he doesn't ask that. All he says is, I'm uncomfortable in this place. His whole life was about his own comfort. His own comfort, he wouldn't take care of a poor man. He knew the poor man. In fact, he said, why don't you send Lazarus? He, even from hell, he decides that he wants Lazarus to still be his lapdog and, and run an errand for him. Go, go have him tell my brothers not to come here because it's not a good place to be. It's not a good place to be because it's uncomfortable, not because God wasn't there. Listen, brothers and sisters, here's the truth. The people who don't love God and don't want God now 
won't love God and won't want God forever. That's the truth. And that makes it very sober reality for us today because it all comes down to this. He said, go tell my brothers. And if my brothers heard from someone who came back from the dead, they would surely repent. They would surely change. And what did Abraham say to him? Hey, they have Moses and the prophets. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't pay attention to someone even if he came back from the grave. And it was shortly thereafter that Jesus was going to come back from the grave and people still don't believe Because the test of whether or not you love God is is whether you listen to his word and obey him and trust him. That's what he said. So it always comes down to this. It's about loving God. Do you love God? Or do you want to live your life independent of God? That's the choice. It's not God who sends people to hell. It's people who choose not to love God and they go to the place where God isn't. Tragically. May it not be so of anyone within the sound of this teaching this morning. If your heart is hearing the word of God and you have never turned your life over to him and you're walking in independence thinking that it will be okay because life is okay. Life is okay because God is giving you the kindness of his grace. It won't be okay in eternity when he is absent, would you turn your life over to him? Our Father and our God, this morning as we close, we just ask that the power of your word would invade our hearts, that the power of your convicting work through the Holy Spirit would grab hold of our stubbornness and turn us to you, O God. We recognize that hell can't scare anybody into the love of God. We recognize, Father, it's only as you enable us to love you that we can come to faith in you. Would you please, Lord, open up the hearts of any who are here that have been hardened or closed to respond and say yes to God today through Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. At the very beginning, I shared with you a sobering statistic that roughly 70% of the people in North America don't believe in hell as a real place of torment and suffering. And I presume that that number makes up the vast majority of people who don't consider themselves Christian. We're living in a fool's paradise. We are rich kids living in a rich God's world and taking for granted the mercy and kindness of God. And these people think that they can spend their whole lives turning their back on the king of glory and rebelling against his glory and that somehow in the end he will take them in and they'll enjoy that. The truth of the matter is that those who've spent a lifetime rejecting the king of glory have turned their back on God and don't want God. In fact, they want God dead. They don't know what that would be like, but that's what they want. And sadly and tragically, hundreds of thousands of people in our region, if we take Whitby and and Oshawa alone, probably 250,000 people are destined right now 
to hell to spend all of eternity with the absence of God. This is our moment, it's an important time, our moment in ministry history to tell people the truth, to urge people to turn to God. This is a season of Easter. This is a time to go and invite people to our Easter presentations, to, to, to gather them around you and bring them to hear the truth that they might respond to the offer of God's love in Christ Jesus. But I also want to be quick to say that there might be some in here who you have been spending your days claiming to be a Christian, but you've been living independent of his love. You've been living however you want, but you're calling yourself a Christian. You're not a Christian. Christians love God and serve him. The distinction between Lazarus and a rich man, who could be any man, as Jesus pointed out, was he listens to the word. If you really love God, it means you obey the word of God. That's how it works. You can't say you love him and then live independent of him. If you want to live independent of him, whether you come to church or you preach a sermon from this platform, you will be independent of him for all eternity. So I'm asking you this morning, I'd hate to go buy a sermon like this and let you walk out to your car as lost as you came in this morning. So if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as the love of your life, the treasure of your life, then I'm gonna be here right at the front of the church and so are other pastors. And we need to talk to you. You need to come this morning and give your heart to the Lord and serve him and love him. Praise the high king of glory. He deserves our allegiance. He blesses us with all good things. Oh God, I pray this morning that you would do your saving work in any who are here. And help us, Lord, to have a new energy and passion for the urgency of the hour and the lostness of our region, oh God. For Jesus' sake, amen.